Good morning. We're glad you're here. Thank you for being a part of what God is doing around us, and uh, you make Sundays better, so we're glad you're in this place. We uh, are in a series called What You Got, talking about what you got in your hands, because there are times when God doesn't answer our prayers by giving us something. He takes what we already have and surprises us with how he can use that. And last week, we looked at an uh, an ox goad in the hand of a man named Shamgar. And I know that was a very obscure verse, a very obscure story. And throughout the week, a few of you said, what was his name again? And what is an ox goad? And we're still trying to process that. Well, today, instead of looking at an obscure verse, we're going to take a look at a part of the story of God that is actually one of the most familiar in all of the stories that we have. Even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, Or if you're new to the story itself, maybe you as a kid said yes to Jesus but just didn't necessarily uh, grasp a lot growing up, you still know this story. And the setting is not the same as last week. Last week was one man with this ox goad and he was going throughout town protecting his people, defending the name of the Lord, defending uh, God's people, the people of Israel, and he took down 600 Philistines throughout his time as a leader of God's people. Well, today in 1 Samuel 17, we have a little more of the traditional understanding of battle and of war. Uh, You've got God's people, the nation of Israel on one hill. You have the people of Philistia on the other hill. Battle lines are clearly drawn, and there's a valley in between. And neither side wants to give up the high ground. Neither side wants to give up a perceived advantage. And yet there they are staring at each other, standing right in front of each other. And it happened for days and days and days and days. So Philistia, even though it felt confident it could overtake Israel, it didn't want to lose unnecessarily any of the people. So they sent out this famous warrior from their side that we know as Goliath. And this man walked out into the valley that was between the army of Israel and the army of Philistia. And he would challenge them day by day. Every morning, The armies would get up, they would have their war cry, they would get all ready, they would take their positions, they would get behind the battle lines, and then Goliath would walk out into the valley, stare into the eyes and hearts of the army of Israel, and say, let's do this man to man. In other words, there's no need for unnecessary bloodshed here. I take on your greatest warrior. If I win, you will become our servants. If you defeat us, then we will become your servants, and let's just get this thing over with. And day after day, he would stand there, and he would taunt the people, he would scream at the people, he would challenge the people, and no one was doing anything at all. Meanwhile, back in a place called Bethlehem, that you and I would understand years and years after this to be a much more important place, but at this time, it was just a small little country town. In Bethlehem, there was a man named Jesse, and he had several sons. Three of them were actually in the army at this time, so three of them were on the hill there next to the Valley of Elah, staring at the Philistines across the way, listening to Goliath every morning. But there were other sons who stayed back because they were too young to be in the army. And one of those sons' name was David. So Jesse said to David, David, I want you to go check on your brothers for me. I want you to take this food. I want you to go see how they're doing and then come back and give me a report. Um, I'm worried about them. I want to make sure everything's fine. I don't know what's going on. Word doesn't travel fast. No one's texted me. I don't know how this thing is going. So you give me a live report and come back. So he sent David to go get the report. David showed up with some food, showed up with some snacks and a little bit of encouragement, showed up near the army. 
And he began to talk and say, hey, how are things going? Do you know my brothers? And he began to list their names and where are they and how can I get connected with them? And when he arrived there, as he was having some of these conversations, it was time. The signal was announced. Israel began to shout its war cry. And then they got in formation and began to go to their normal daily stations. They weren't doing anything. They were just going to go line up behind the battle lines. So he's there, he's watching all this go on, and at the same time, he hears this representative from the army of Philistia begin to shout. And he doesn't know who Goliath is, he just sees a man out there standing in the valley, taunting the people, and David is struggling with this. He's thinking, what is going on? Like, there's a man, he just challenged all your manhood, he just challenged all your pride, he just said that there's nothing special about us. He defies the armies of the one true God, and none of you is going to do anything. And, you know, that's what kids do. Kids step into an environment they don't understand and say, well, if I was here, this is what I would do. We all did that as kids. Well, if I was here, this is what would go on. I'd sit in the movie theater with my family, and some guy's just talking and, and raising a disturbance. I look at my dad like, if I was a dad, I'd take him out. Like, what are you doing? Like, what, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you doing something? Stand up for your family. And my, of course, my dad's smart enough to know you don't stand up in a movie theater, go punch a man because he's talking. But I'm like a kid going, I would. That's what I would do. I'm nine, but if I wasn't nine, I'd take that guy. Like, that's, we all feel like if we were in a different spot, this is what we would do. And David, this perhaps middle school age kid, we don't know exactly, but he's hanging around this army going, if I had a sword, if I had a shield, I'd take that guy out right now. And all the other soldiers listening go, just get out of here. Get out of here, kid. You don't understand. And one of David's brothers found out he was there. David's oldest brother confronts him and says, what are you doing? Why are you here? Well, I came with stuff. My dad, you know, dad got this message. He wanted to make sure everything was okay. Get out of here. Go deal with your sheep. Is someone taking care of your sheep? That's your one job. You're good at that. You go back home. Deal with that. We're, we're here doing big boy stuff. David said, you're not doing big boy stuff. You're hiding. You're just sitting here. You're not doing anything big boy at all. You're not doing anything, and no one's moving, and I don't get it. So David began to ask questions, and in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, it says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's his way of saying, what is going on? Like, why is no one doing anything? How can you sit here day after day and have your faith challenged and have the name of God drugged through the mud? Because we're not here because we want land. We're here because God put his favor on us. He promised us this land. People are standing in the way, and we are doing this because God's given us a promise. We're seeing that thing fulfilled. God has given us his covenant. If we'll do what he asks us to do, he'll bless us in this way. And why is no one getting this? He's struggling to understand what's happening. So his brother says, go on home, and he's slow to go home. And word gets back to the king. King Saul is his name, the first king of Israel. And Saul finds out that there's a kid who is having these conversations and talking a lot of smack. So he says, bring him to me. I want to talk with him. So Abner, the general of the army, goes and gets David and says, the king wants to see you. So he brings David into the presence of the king. So there they are, face to face, and this is what David has to say. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. 
I just envision, never fear, Captain Under, you know, here I am. Like, I'm ready to deal with this. It's okay. 11-year-old has spoken. Seventh grade is out. Like, here I am. It's okay, king. I've got this. Let no one lose heart. I am here to save the day. And I don't know whether it was done in some dramatic way or not, but I can't believe that Saul would think, hey, maybe, you know, maybe this is what I've been waiting on. Maybe we were waiting on the JVs. You know, maybe we were waiting on the youngsters to come out, and he surely didn't. So he began to talk with them, and he began to explain, like, you're not really ready for this. And these were his words in verse 33. He says, you're not able to go out against the Philistines and fight uh, fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul says, you're not ready for this. You're not prepared for this. Have you not seen yourself lately? Have you not looked in a mirror? You're too little. You don't have the experience. You don't have the strength. You're not going to be able to do this. This is a man's job. And if I'm David, I'm turning and going, oh, you're men. Okay, this is a man's job, and no one is doing anything. He says, it's okay, though, because I've been preparing my whole life. God's placed me in positions, and I have never failed to rise up to the challenge. And I've taken down lions. I've taken down bears. I've protected my sheep. And now I'm going to protect this people, protect this army. I'm going to do this thing now. I've been waiting on this moment for my entire life. And we've talked about this before in, in previous weeks, how God tests us with small things to see if we're ready for the bigger things. We don't always pay attention to the small stuff. We don't give it much attention. And then when the big moment comes, we wonder why we weren't more successful. And God says, I've been giving you moment after moment after moment to prepare, but you didn't feel like any of those things were that big a deal, and now you're not ready. It reminds me of being in high school, and I was in 11th grade. I took chemistry class, and that was I knew it was going to be the hardest class for me because I wasn't a real fan of science. And I wasn't a fan of the professor, and that was going to be an issue. And you, we all know, the more you like a class, the more you like the professor, usually the better you do. And um, I knew it was going to be hard. I prepped my mom for it. And then one six weeks, because it wasn't nine-week progress supports. When I was a kid, it was six weeks. So you had six, and then six, and then you got you know, your final grade for that semester. And at one of those six-week reports, I brought home a very unusual progress report. I had six classes, and I had A, 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 A. A and F. So of six classes, I had five A's and an F. And I showed my mom, and I said, I don't know what's going on. This can't be right. That's what every kid says. This is just not right. A typo. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll get it fixed when I get back to school. And mom says, well, do you need me to help you get that fixed? Like, no, no, do not come to school. Do not, no, we do not need this happening. That's the most embarrassing thing a parent can do for a kid is to butt in the school experience and, and try to assert yourself. And mom's like, okay, well, then you take care of it. So I went to the teacher and said, hey, this can't be right. I'm not great at science. I get that, but it says F. He said, yeah, you have an F. I said, well, can you help me understand that? He said, just have your mom call me. I like, oh. So mom calls the teacher, sets up a meeting. She has a meeting. She leaves the meeting. I leave school. I go home, and mom says, hey, let's talk about this. I was like, yeah, what was that about? She said, well... 
you're right in that you have not failed the two or three tests that you had along the way, but you have solid zeros every day. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? It's like, he takes daily grades. It's like, what daily grades? She said, he takes participation and conduct grades. I said, oh, she's like, and you have zeros straight across the board. Six weeks of zeros. So zeros and two or three C's average to an F. Like, that can't be right. So I went to talk with him. I said, what is this conduct grade? He said, yeah, every time you turn your back around and talk to people around in class, zero. Every time I speak up and ask for a hand, you don't raise your hand, zero. Like, what kind of, he said, I'm the teacher, I do my thing. And, and from my perspective, I was ready for the test. And I gave no attention to all those little moments along the way. And it bit me. Uh, I, I wasn't able to fix that. And in the end, literally cost my parents thousands of dollars in college. I had, that, that grade dropped me significantly in the overall. Um, so, sorry, Mom, Dad, that was not my fault. Uh, but that, that was a struggle, and it wasn't something I was ready for. And many of you have looked at all the little decisions you've made along the way and thought, ah, it's just a little here, it's a little lie here, it's just, it doesn't really matter here. I know what God says about this, but this isn't a big deal. I guess I'll just do this for a short time. And, and then we get to these moments when we stare at our Goliath, whatever that is, and we're not ready. We're not prepared because we didn't pay attention to all those small moments along the way. And David looked at Saul and said, you don't have to worry about that with me. I've done all these little things, and I'm ready for this. So Saul said, fine, you want to go out and kill yourself? Here we go. So he put his armor on him. And the best we can tell as we go through historical figures and documents, Saul was probably 6'3 or 6'4. Um, David, we know, was small for his age, and his age was pretty young. So maybe a kid 5'3 putting on the armor of a man 6'4, it's going to look pretty funny. It's going to be a little heavy. He said, I can't wear this stuff. I'm going to take what I know. I'm going to take what's in my hands. I'm going to take what I've got. He said, I've got a and I've got a sling. Now, when I was a kid and I heard about David and the slings and the stones, I envisioned like a slingshot. And I, you know, as a child, thought, you know, I'll go out in the yard and I'll use the slingshot. And you get about 30 feet. And I'm thinking, how, how, do you kill, how do you kill a giant this way? How do you kill a large man this way? And, but if you go back and look, there, there was actual art to it. And there were people in the army who that was the weapon. Some had swords, some had spears, some had bows and arrows, some had javelins, some had slings. Now, as I read through this, it actually called them slingers, but I felt really weird about that. So I'm just going to say use a sling, okay? Um, these people used a sling and used it well, and they would take this sling and they would whip it around. It would go about six to ten rotations. They would let it fly, and it would easily be able to hit the target and, and have a fatal blow. To the point where some of them were able to hit birds in flight. They were so good with those slings. So David was confident with his weapon. He wasn't walking around going, I hope I can pull this out. No, he knew. Like, I know what to do here, but I'm going to do it my way. The rules of engagement will be my rules of engagement. I'm not going to walk up and punch him. I'm not going to walk up with a sword and try to fight him. I can't do that. Too small, it's not going to work out. But I know what I do well, and I'm going to use that thing. So he prepared himself. He went forward. He faced this giant Goliath, this Philistine warrior. And after hearing the insults come from him, David replied in verse 45, 
He said, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now, as I read that through, and this defiant David is standing in front of Goliath, I, I hear the voice of Liam Neeson. I, I will cut you down. I will chop off your head, and the world will know that there is a God. Um, just this, I've got this. Here's the plan. I'm going to sling this thing. I'm going to hit you. I'm going to drop you. I'm going to chop off your head, and then everybody's going to know whose God is God. So he walks forward. It literally says he runs to the battle. He gets his little shepherd's fanny pouch, and he pulls out a stone. He puts it in the sling, lets it fly, and sure enough, hits Goliath. He goes down. He's dead. The story says that he walked over to Goliath. He took Goliath's own sword and chopped off Goliath's head. Then he picked up his head by its hair and began to walk back. Now, can you just envision for a moment the scene with thousands of men in their armor who have been unable for almost six weeks to move a muscle and you've got this kid with sandals walking back with a shepherd's fanny pouch with, pat with stones in it, holding this head, bleeding out, walking back up. Nothing to be said. There's not anything to be said by any soldier at that point. And Abner, the general in the army, went to David and said, uh, the king would like to see you. David showed up in front of the king again, this time still holding the head of Goliath. And Saul's words to David literally were, who are you? Who are you? I mean, what, what are you doing? Who does this? Who has that kind of courage? And he said, I'm Jesse's boy. I'm from Bethlehem. Now, when we look at the story, we can get overwhelmed with the odds and the big and the small. And what is my Goliath? And if you've turned on any Christian radio, accidentally even, for 10 seconds, someone has said, what is your Goliath today? Like, that's been a thing. I know we've all been asked that. And it's a legitimate question, and there are a lot of application points there. But what I want us to see here is that Saul was not overwhelmed with David because of his ability. It was his willingness. Saul, or, uh, David, rather, was not the only person on the hillside that could do that. But he was the only one who would do that. He was not the only one able. He was just the only one willing. And I can promise you, I would bet everything I have on it, that as soon as it happened, at least a half a dozen soldiers said, well, if I knew we could use slings, I would. Like, I, you know that had to be said. All these big men that laughed at him and said, what's the kid doing? All of a sudden now it's, well, I didn't know we could do that. I, I, would, I, I had something different. All the excuses in the world, but they never moved. And David ran to the battle. So it's not really about what was in his hand. It's what drove him to use what was in his hand. And, and many of us are facing stuff that we know intellectually, even spiritually, that we can overcome. We're facing an addiction. We're facing destructive behavior. We're facing disappointment, facing discouragement, facing a new job opportunity. We're facing whatever. We've got all these things we're facing. And we know that if we stepped out in faith and trusted God, that we would be okay. We know that. And you would give that kind of advice to anyone else around you. Hey, 
If you'll trust God in this moment, you know he'll never let you down. If you honor him with this, we know all the stuff, and yet we're just paralyzed with potential. We've got this thing in our hands, but what drives us to actually go forward and do something about it? Instead of doing what thousands of men did on that same day, just sit there on the hillside hiding behind, soldier, uh, hiding behind swords and spears and shields and helmets. Armored up, ready to go, afraid to move. There are two things that move David, and we have to go back to some of his words, I think, define this. The first one is he was driven to defend God's name. This wasn't about making a name for himself. He was driven to stand up to defend, to do something about the fact that God's name was being drugged through the mud. He said in verse 26, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He said, this disgrace is not the fact that there's a man who doesn't belong to us walking our land. That's not the disgrace. The disgrace was he's standing in front of us, challenging God's people, and God's people are doing nothing. He said, that is a disgrace. Who's going to remove this and fix this and do something about what is happening here? And he was moved to stand up. He didn't say, there's no way I can be killed. There's no way this can be any other way than victory. He didn't know that for sure. All he knew was that he could not sit still anymore. It was his way of saying, I may not be prepared, but I'm really perturbed, and I'm moving, and I'm going to do something about this. Even if I go down, that's fine. Even if I go down, I will at least know that I have gone down defending the name of God. This is not about me. They called God's name into this thing. When we were children, you know, the whole deal where they would talk about me, talk about me, but don't talk about my mom, and the whole, the whole deal, like, that's happening here. Like, you can shout your insults, and you can cuss me all day, but do not bring the name of the Lord into this thing. Don't challenge his power. Don't challenge his strength. And don't challenge our loyalty to him, because now we're going to go. And that was David's mo- movement. That was his drive. That was his reason. That was his momentum, the motivation, the whole thing, to defend God's name, and secondly, also, to help people believe. He showed up there with Saul and said, don't let the people lose heart. Like, in other words, people are starting to doubt. People are losing confidence in this thing. There were times in our lives, times in our history, when we stood on the other edge of water, having walked across on dry land, and we said, God can do anything. We've got this. And there was so much confidence as we moved forward into God's plan, and now here we are. Where did all that confidence go? Now we're not sure, we're afraid, we're fearful, we're hiding back, and confidence is waning with God's people. He said, I'm going to step up, if nothing else, to inspire the people. And sure enough, after a few decades pass, we find David leading God's men into battle, fierce and prepared and ready to go because things were different. He believed his faith, his relationship with God was different than Saul's. But he wanted to help the people believe, and so he tells Saul, Don't worry, don't let the people lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant is going to go and to fight him. I'll do this for the people. So I'm going to defend God's name, and I'm going to give people a reason to believe again. Notice that nothing had to do with David. This wasn't about his name, his renown, his fame, his legacy. Nothing about that at all. And everyone else there, if they could have spoken up, would have said, David, have you not looked in the mirror lately? Like, you can't do this. 
And that's, to me, the key. David spent very little time looking in the mirror. It wasn't about what is here. It was about what is out there. And he said, God's name is being doubted and God's people are losing confidence. I'm going to do something about that. The mirror is going to talk you out of more battles and talk you out of more blessings from God than anything else and anybody ever could. You just looking at yourself, saying, here's my past, here's my story, here's what I've done, here are my mistakes, here are my sins, here are my limitations, here are my talents, here's my lack of talent, all about us. We at times feel like self-absorbed and selfish people, self-centered people are pretty and rich and arrogant and love themselves, and that is not the case at all. That's not what it is to be self-centered. Self-centered means that every opportunity I have is first measured by what I see in the mirror. In other words, it's about me. Is this a sure thing? How am I going to look? How are people going to perceive this? What are they going to think? What if I fail? What if I look foolish? What if all of the scenarios we play out in our head, that's self-centeredness. And self-centered people are never going to feel the full weight of God's mercy because God's not going to be a part of that. God says, you want to build a kingdom for yourself? Go at it. But that's not why I created you. And if you want to create and be a part of what I'm creating, then my favor is going to be with you. My power is going to go with you. I'll walk with you in this thing. David had a motivating factor other than himself. He was motivated by other, something other than his own stinking glory. And as a result, God said, that's my guy. That's who I want to be with. That's who I'm going to align with. That's who's going to wear my name. That's who's going to position himself to lead the people. That guy is different. And if you and I want to spend our lives staring at what we have and what we don't have, looking at the stuff in our hands, trying to decide, is it enough? Am I enough? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I rich enough? Am I this? Am I that? We're never going to move. And we're no different than a bunch of soldiers on the hill hiding behind our swords saying, well, if this, then I would do this. Well, if this, at some point we have to move. It was why Christy and I decided to step out and do this thing and, and be a part of starting the church. Um, I'd spent a couple of years away from church, and it was nice. Like many of you, I could, I, we would go to our church, and I could sit in the back and go, too cold in here today. I'm about this. Nobody greeted me very good. Toilet paper so rough in the bathroom. Like, we, we, our lives were just whatever, whatever. Just come and go, come and go. It doesn't really matter. Well, I filled out that thing. No one called me. I filled out that thing. I didn't get a response. I signed up to serve here. I tithe for the first time. No one thanked me for that. You know, I, I, we were able to do all that. And then at some point, we thought, you know what? That's not what kingdom's about. Because I still got people around me who don't believe that God's still at work in their lives. And they need to see miracles of mercy. And they need to see trophies of grace. And they need to see God work through ordinary people. They need to see God put lives back together. They, I just, I cannot, I, I can't sit still. It wasn't about anything other than we just can't anymore. And at some point, I hope God stirs in your heart to the point where it's just not okay that your friends and the people that you love around you have lost confidence in God. It's just not okay with you. So you're going to do whatever you can to inspire and encourage confidence again, to remind them that God is still alive and God is still at work. And he hasn't changed. And he hasn't stopped. He's still moving. We get a chance to step forward and say, I may look foolish for doing this, but I'm going to have that conversation. I may look really silly for agreeing to this open door, but I'm walking through it. I may not know anything about how to lead my family spiritually, 
but I am going to show this world there's at least one family that can stand on the promise that our house is built on God. I may not do it right, but I'm going to fall and die trying. It doesn't matter. Just I'm driven by something more than me. And at our core, at our hearts, we are self-centered people, all of us. And every single day, we look at our lives and decide whether or not we're going to respond to God's invitation. But at some point, we have to stop and say, what is the consequence of my indecision here? If I say no, how is this going to affect people's view of God? If I say no, how is this going to affect my community's belief that God is still alive and is still active and he's still working in our lives? What if I don't? We've got to, at some point, begin to ask those questions. You say, well, I'm not selfish. Try taking all the mirrors out of your house just one day. It's weird. You start walking around going, what am I doing? Oh, yeah, I normally look at myself. Just try. Go a day without. Just put all your mirrors away. Cover them up to see. Now, I'm not, this is not a vanity check. I'm just meaning, spiritually speaking, we do the same thing. God says, here's someone who you could talk to. Oh, that'd be kind of awkward. I don't know what to say. I'm not sure I'm going to get this thing right. Well, here's an opportunity for you to be public with your faith. Over, I don't want to impose on anybody. It looks weird. I don't want to beat anybody over the head with the have all these reasons, and it all goes back to us. We never stop and just say, who's going to take down that challenge? Who's going to step up? Because it's not about being prepared. It's about being willing. It's not about your ability. It's about your willingness to obey. And God's inviting all of us to some challenge today, and I encourage you to go back to this, sling that stone, and just trust God with the results. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to give us chance after chance and moment after moment to step up to the plate. And I don't know what the big obstacles are in front of the lives of the people in this place today, but I know you are able. Uh, maybe there are moments of forgiveness that need to take place. Uh, maybe there are apologies that need to be made. Maybe there are public declara declarations of faith that need to take place. Maybe there's encouragement that needs to be forgiven. Maybe there's a destructive habit that needs to be eliminated from someone's life. Whatever it is, God, it's probably too big for us. And whatever it is, there are probably people around us that are whispering, we can't, and we're not ready, and we're not prepared, or we're not able, or we've tried this before, or that will never work. So God, I pray that you would silence those voices, that you would be our confidence, and you would be our courage in this moment. For any person in this place who's not a follower of Jesus, I pray that they would step out today and let that be their first act of courage to receive that free gift that you offer us, that invitation to come and take up our cross and to follow you. For those who are followers of Jesus and never gone public with that, maybe today is an opportunity for them to, after the service, take that connect card and say, I'm ready to be baptized, I'm ready to take that next step, or I'm I want to be more involved. I want to sign up for a group. I want to do something else to reconnect myself with God's plans and God's purposes. God, use us as you will. Work through us in a special way today. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.